Well, good morning, church. Good morning. morning. All right. You guys are ready. Yeah. It's so good to be with you here this morning. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be with you. If you don't know me, I'm Mike Luganville. I'm a member here at TCC. And we've been going through this this series about gospel threads. How, How do you take metaphors from the gospel, like justification, forgiveness? And today we're going to be talking about adoption. How do you take that and apply that to evangelism? How do you relate that to people and tell them about the gospel? So today, before we get into the text, I just want to ask you guys, uh, when have you ever felt adopted? Were you ever, did you ever feel adopted by someone or by a group of people? Uh, maybe it's a, a friend who, well, whose family welcomed you in. They treated you like they, you were your, their own son or like their own daughter. Uh, maybe you were in a club once and you had a special sign like a whistle. Or you maybe had a, a, a hand sign. I don't know if anyone's ever seen motorcyclists on the road, right? When they pass each other, they're strangers, complete strangers. But because they've got a bike, they throw their hands, fingers down to the ground and point to one another like they're in the same club because they are, right? They're, they feel belonging. They belong to this group of people who share a common, common thread. Or maybe you have a special handshake. You've seen a special handshake with someone. Everyone remember Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? You know, Will and Jazz, they go up to other, they slap and they go, right? And I always thought that was really cool, right? Guys that belong, you had some a connection with one another. Uh, or maybe you were uh, new to a neighborhood and uh, a family welcomed you. Someone just said, we're so glad that you're here. Maybe it was when you, you moved to a new, new house, uh, a new city, a new state, or even a new country. Uh, for myself, one of the most... Uh, one of the greatest times that I've experienced feeling adopted was uh, uh, when I lived in Germany. Um, I, uh, I didn't know the language. I lived in a small town, and I lived in a flat of this elderly couple, sweetest elderly couple you could ever imagine, called the Rudigers, and they treated me like a son. They, they made me meals. They made me Käsespätzle and Kuchen, and, and they, just, they just loved on me. They even had their 50th wedding anniversary. I've got a picture here um, where they just invited me in. They had... They, <laughs> They had just their immediate family. Just they have like five or six kids, and lots of grandkids. And they let me sit in the front of their their like expensive vehicle they rented for the weekend. And they, I was there for the after party too. And they just look at that. They just like here, come be a, you're part of this family. You belong here. And I can't tell you how awesome that was. I actually uh, called them this morning just to ask, can I use this picture? You know, <laughs> uh, which they're grateful to provide. But there's something about these kinds of relationships, right, uh, that make us feel adopted. And any type of relationship, whether it's parent, child, coworker, boss, neighbor to neighbor, there's a deep longing in each of us to feel cherished, to feel wanted, to feel adopted. Jonathan Dobson, who, who wrote this series that we're kind of going through on, on Gospel Thread, says, our hearts long for approval. No matter how terrible or how great our family life is or even our relationship is with someone, the approval of mom and dad or even that other person will never, ever be enough. To be adopted means to belong, to be cherished, to be a cherished member of, to someone or to a group. So what about our relationship with God? Have you ever felt adopted by him? Do you, do you feel like you're in a relationship with him? What does the Bible say about this? What does it say about this metaphor of adoption and how can we communicate it well through evangelism to others? That's what we're going to look at today in this passage in Galatians. And this passage today provides three arguments for how one can know that they're an adopted child of God because his children remember the God's plan of adoption, God's children receive the son's payment of adoption, and God's children revel in the spirit's privileges of adoption. So the father's plan of adoption, the son's payment of adoption, and the spirit's 
privileges of adoption. So first, his children remember the father's plan of adoption. A little background here. So we're in the book of Galatians for this passage, and the Apostle Paul is writing to primarily a a gentle audience. There are Jewish Christians amongst them too in Galatia. And it's actually one of his most critical letters to a church. Uh, The reason why he's writing this way is because if you read in Galatians 1, verse 6, he says, He is so astonished that they are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. During the context of this time, false teachers have come into their church community and trying to convince them that it's not just being saved by Christ. You don't have to just trust in him, but you also have to do X, Y, and Z. You also have to uh, be circumcised, eat certain foods, practice certain holidays in order to be saved, in order to be justified before God. So, so Paul likens this to slavery in chapter 2, and, he, and he's writing this way to defend the purity of the gospel of grace. He argues in Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He argues that the gospel is all graced, all undeserved favor. And he does that here based on a few different ways. Um, and the way that we're reading in this text here, he's, he's prioritizing the Abrahamic covenant over the Mosaic one, the promise covenant. Uh, if uh, if you know, if you've heard our kids singing in, uh, in Sunday school and in class, they have this great song. If you haven't heard it, uh, I won't do it justice, but I'll give it a shot. It goes, uh, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower of Babel. It goes through the 40 stories of scripture. It's really great. Uh, but that beginning, right? Creation, fall, promise. We got to remember God created people to be good, right? But the fall has made us all orphans, right? We've all been separated from God because of sin, because of Adam and Eve's sin that's been inherited and passed down, and also because of ours. And now the promise, the Abrahamic covenant, is what came after it. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, put it up here, says, This is what God promised to Abram. He said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see there's actually two phrases in there repeated five times? Did you pick up on them? First one's I will. God will. It indicates God is the one who's going to do the work. He's going to do the blessing. And that's the second one, the blessing, the bless. This word barak in the Hebrew means to praise, to congratulate, to make happy. We, we read about it all the time in the Psalms, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. God ultimately gets the glory, and he calls his people, he blesses his people to get his glory as well. And it's only by God's grace that he promised to bless all the nations, not just his chosen race, not just the Jewish people, but the Gentiles too. They're grafted in, right? And all of redemptive history, it points to who God is and what, and who God is is tied to what he is going to do. He is faithful to his promises. Psalm 68, 5 said that God, says that God is a father to the fatherless. God is an adopting father, and his plan to adopt us started a long time ago. Look at Ephesians 1.5. It says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's plan to adopt us is never, ever a plan B. It was always plan A. So how about you? How about, how about myself? Do we have a plan when it comes to adoption, or is adoption just plan B? 
biological children are such a gift to us, right? Uh, but equally so, equally so, our adopted children. In the world today, there's about 147 million orphans. In the U.S., there's 391,000 children in the foster care system. 114,000 are waiting for adoption. How, how can we, as God's chosen people, as God's blessed people, bless other people, bless especially children? How can we have that same adopting mindset as God? And then what about evangelism? Do we have a plan when it comes to evangelism? I, I don't know if anyone, has anyone heard of the bridge diagram? Anyone? Yeah, some people? Okay, well, I just want to quickly run through this because I think it's really helpful. It's, it's one way that has really helped me if I ever meet someone and then we start talking about the gospel and I go, well, do you understand it? Have you heard the gospel? You know, simple, honest questions. You can go, well, if you haven't, could I, could I share that with you? And one of the things that really helps me as a visual learner is, is an actual diagram. So, that, so we'll go through this here, but who is God? That's the first question to ask. Who is God? And the Bible has so many things. There's just a few verses here that I pulled from David Platt's series on gospel threads. But God is holy, God is just, and God is gracious, right? That, that's who our God is. He, he's the father to the fatherless. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about the rest later. But, but just to remind you guys that adoption requires a plan, and so does evangelism. This is the Father's plan, to bless his children through adoption. So let's, let's get into the text here. So, so verse 3, right? In the same way we also, when we were children... Uh, we, this word children, it, it means underage. When we, he, he's drawing on an illustration from earlier in verses 1 and 2, but it's basically indicating, Paul saying that Christians were no different than slaves. They depended on a guardian who enslaved them to these elementary principles of the world. Um, remember, we, yes, we are all made in the image of God, Genesis 1.27, but that is totally different than being a child of God. So what is a child of God? Is a child of God just someone who grew up in church? Is a child of God someone who goes to church, claims to be a Christian, or, or is a pastor who prays, reads the Bible, or just gives a sermon? Is that what makes you, just because you do those things, does that make you a Christian, a child of God? No, that's not what makes you a Christian. J.I. Packer says that none of us were born genetically into God's family. We read about this often in the, in the Bible too, right? In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's like an affectionate way, just because they have thought they affectionately knew Jesus, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The, this phrase, the elementary principles of the, word, of the world, is, uh, is disputed among scholars. It's very challenging, but it is used strategically here by Paul. Remember, again, he's speaking to uh, uh, Gentiles primarily, but also a Jew, Jewish audience. And what this phrase basically means for us is, is it means the power of sin, that Christians were enslaved to the power of sin. And it applies to people who are religious, who often tend to be legalistic. It also relates to people who are irreligious, who want nothing to do with living holy and godly lives. You know, Satan has taken what is good, he's taken the law, and he's taken created things, and he's turned them into idols. He, he enslaves us to them. But the power of sin can show up in our lives in other ways, too, through, like, fearing others, right? We can either maybe we fear others' disapproval or we can fear others' approval. We seek others' approval so much that we seek it above God's. Satan will take a good thing, even, like a family or a spouse, a child, a job, a hobby, and he makes it the ultimate thing. This is the common human condition under the law, that all of us were enslaved to the power of sin and we were born into it. 
Paul, Paul says this another way in Ephesians 2, 1, through 2, 1 and 2. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were all children of God's righteous anger, his just wrath because of our sin. Uh, I recently heard a story from a woman who was in the process of adopting an Ethiopian girl with HIV AIDS. And people would come to her and ask her, why? why? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And she would reply, why not? And they would say to her, well, well, she has HIV. And her response is really powerful. I don't want us to miss this. She says, well, God adopted me when I had something far worse than HIV. So what about you and I? What, what has God set us free from that we can tell others about? You know, as Christians, we daily fight the battle of sin, right? But praise God, it no longer has any hold on us. It has no power over us because of Christ. Adoption sets people free. It sets people free from the slavery to sin. Uh, Jonathan Dobson again says, the gospel of adoption is the antidote to the idolatry of reputation. This is the father's plan to set his children free from sin through adoption. So how do we apply this to evangelism? Let's look back again at the bridge diagram um, if we can. Remember, we have God. He's holy, just, and gracious. He's infinite, right? But then look at ourselves. Who are we? Who, who do people say? What, what does the Bible say that we are? Michael went through this a couple weeks ago in justification, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are selfish, impure, and not just. That acronym, right? Sin. We're selfish. Um, and if you don't remember any of these other verses, you know, one of the, there's certain gospel verses that can be really helpful. And one I would point you to is this Romans 6.23 you know, because of our sin, we're not just separated from God because there's an infinite gap between God and us, uh, but we also deserve hell, right? For the wages of sin is death. We, we have earned separation from God. I put these little marks too at the bottom, right? We try to make up for it though. We try to do good things. We try to be like, well, God will be pleased with me and accept me if I just do good work. Uh, even the Bible says in Isaiah, right, that all of our good works are like filthy rags before him. So, so not even us. We can't bridge the gap for God. We, this is bad news. This is terrible news, right, that we are separated from him. Um, but let's, uh, let's look at the next verse. So in verse 4, what did God do? So when the full, when, uh, in the same way also, we, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but, I love this but, one T. I love buts in the Bible, just one T. Uh, especially look at Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 5. It says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, right? We just talked about the Ephesians passage earlier. We were dead in the trespasses of our sins, but something happened, but God did something. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were dead in our sins, dead, enslaved to others' approvals, but God now, now this phrase that comes next after this, but God, when the fullness of time had come, right? It's, it's significant. It reminds us that God's timing is good and pers- uh, pur- purposeful. Yeah, it's also challenging for us too, right? God is on a different timetable than us. He says this in 2 Peter 3.8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And we may never understand God's timing. We may never get it. But 
we do know that 2 Peter 3.9 continues, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Think about redemptive history again. Think about how faithful God was to the promises, right? Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. They were in the desert for 40 years. They were taken into exile for another 70 years. And then we have the intertestamental period, right? There's 400 silent years between the end of Malachi, before Matthew, before Jesus came and lived among us. The Lord has always been faithful. Remember in Mark 1.15 when Jesus came, what did he say? He said, the time is fulfilled. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Romans, Paul, Paul in, in verses five, uh, chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The church is still waiting for Jesus to return, almost 2,000 years later, right? And adoption takes a lot of waiting too. Waiting for those who are adopting and waiting for those children who are yet to be adopted. And a lot of us are experiencing that, I'm sure, as well. Right? Waiting for family, waiting for friends, waiting for neighbors to be set free from the power of sin, waiting for them to be adopted. It's, it's really hard to wait. It's really hard, we live, especially in our culture of now, right? Immediate self-gratification. We can often be so impatient, but there's so much blessing in the waiting, right? The Bible says to be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. It takes a lot of patience to wait for someone to be adopted, but it is so worth it. It's like a friend of mine at work. He's been sharing the gospel faithfully with a coworker for the last nine years, and just in the last couple of months, this coworker finally gave his life to Christ. You know, it's just, just a beautiful story, just how the right time comes when it comes, right? The fullness of time has come. Now, look, look at what God does in the fullness of time. At the right time, what did he do? God sent his son. He sent, and he didn't just send his son. Don't miss that word, forth. He sent forth his son, right? He did something about our sin problem. And he didn't just send any solution. He sent his one unique and only son. And as we'll see later in verse 6, he didn't just send his one and only son. He also sent the spirit of his son. But we'll talk about that later. But for right now, uh, this phrase, this, this is actually a structure called a sending formula, a lot of scholars say, that God um, appointed someone, God uh, sent someone to do something uh, sent someone somewhere to do something, right? Um, and this phrase that God sent, it's also important because it indicates Jesus' pre-existence, right? That Jesus pre-existed before he came. He wasn't just born of a woman. He was with the Father. There was perfect harmony, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the world even began. But it's important, too, that he was born of a woman, right? Now, he's fully God, but he's also fully man, he was born of a woman. Jesus is unique, and he was born under the law. He lived as a Jewish man, and he lived under the law, yet he didn't sin. He followed the law completely. And, and these, he meets the, the certain, requir- certain requirements or certain qualifications that we need, right, to be connected to God, to be adopted by the Father. So adoption takes time, and it has certain qualifications The father's plan was to send forth his unique son at just the right time for adoption. This is the gospel. So let's let's complete the bridge diagram, right? So we had God, infinite, holy, just, gracious, uh, and us, finite, separated from him because of sin. But what did God do? But God sent his son, Jesus. He's our bridge. He's the one that makes a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Right? 
And he meets the certain qualifications of the law, fully man and fully God. First uh, John 3, 5 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. <clears throat> Jesus is unique, and he alone can span the infinite gap between us and God. So this is the Father's plan for adoption. We should know, understand, and remember this. But remember, too, that just knowing this and understanding this, it's not enough for a relationship with God. It's not enough to be adopted just because you know this, uh, as we read in Matthew 7. And not everyone will cross the bridge, sadly, right? Not everyone will have a relationship with God through Jesus. So what needs to happen? Well, secondly, we need to receive. Children receive the son's payment of adoption. And this is a costly legal transaction, as a lot of this language shows through here. Look at verse 5. God sent forth a son born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The son, Jesus, was sent for sons. It's, in, it's really interesting, this concept of adoption, that Paul is using this metaphor. Um, it, it's actually thought that he adopted this adoption metaphor from the actual Greek and Roman practices of his time. Since many of the terms in here stress like legal rights and privileges that were conferred on a man who was adopted. And, and even if you look at the Old Testament, the word for adoption in the Septuagint is not even found. There are a few adoptions, mind you, right? We think of Moses and a couple others. But it's really not until Jesus and in the New Testament that this phrase, this metaphor for the gospel, this adoption, is used. And the, Paul, the, word, the Greek word that Paul uses for adoption is huothosia, huothosia. Say that five times fast. It's, uh, it's only used four other times here. It's all in Pauline letters. In Romans, it's used three times. In Ephesians, it's also used. And it's a word not found in any other Greek writings of the time. It's, it's unique, and it's so special. And, and that's just more reasons for why adoption is so unique and so special and so central to the gospel. J.I. Packer says, the entire Christian life has to be understood, has to be understood in the terms of adoption. Now, look at what Jesus did he, in verse 5. He was sent to redeem. Adoption is the fulfillment of what we talked about earlier, God's plan to rescue and free slaves. Christians were once slaves but have been set free, have been liberated, have been redeemed from the power of sin. This word redemption means like an exchange. Like if, if you redeem someone or something, it implies a payment of some sort in exchange for something else. If we look back in Galatians, Paul says this earlier too in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This, this costly payment is what Christians can physically, empirically, legally, objectively claim as their very own. It's the foundation we can stand on, right? It's the great exchange. Jesus offers his sinless, righteous life in exchange for our messy, sinful ones. We can get his life for ours, our life for his. Theologians call this a substitutionary atonement. Uh, Jesus in our place. Jesus paid the price we could never pay. Jesus paid the debt that we have to pay. <laughs> and he did that so that we might receive adoptions. Adoptions in the, in the world here are costly too, right? They're costly legal transactions. It costs the father everything to adopt children because he gave up his one and only son. What about us? Is there anything we are unwilling to pay to obey God? Are we open to even adoption? Are we open to maybe even moving somewhere for the gospel? 
Are we, opening, are we open to even more smaller things like welcoming neighbors and foreigners into our homes for a meal? Or are all these things just too costly? Are they, are they too inconvenient? My prayer for us today is that God would soften our hearts to be willing to pay the price because of what God paid to adopt us. So now how does this legal transaction happen? Well, look at the end of verse 5, right? Uh, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption. That, that's the key part, to receive it, right? In, ver, in verse uh, uh, 26 of chapter 3, uh, Paul also writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Again, this is what Michael preached on a couple weeks ago in justification, that we are all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's, it's what Jesus said again in Math, Mark 1.15, that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. T- repentance is a turning from sin and turning towards something, turning towards Jesus and trusting in him, putting your whole life in his hands. It's like sitting in a chair, right? Like you sit down in a chair, uh, you're trusting that chair to hold you up. And it's just like when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're trusting that Jesus is going to carry us through the ups and downs, through the twists and turns of life. Mark 8, Jesus says it's even better than I could. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and my sake and the gospels will save it. So have you done this? Is Jesus your life? Have you laid your life down and turned it over to Jesus? Have you turned from sin and are trusting in him alone? Have you received his payment for your sins? Have you said to him, take my life and let it be all for you? I don't care what others think. I don't want their approval or I don't care if they disapprove of me. I just want you. If you haven't yet, I want to invite you to do that. Do that right now if you can. Um, And if you do, God promises to forgive you. He promises to adopt you, to bring you into his family forever. Uh, Some of the promises like in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As we'll sing about this week at at, uh, VBS, in Jesus' name, everyone who believes in him shall receive forgiveness of sins. So what are you waiting for? Please, I beg you to do that right now. His kindness and his patience is meant to lead us to repentance. If you have done that, great. Like, then keep re-believing this good news, right? Over and over again. Never get over this. Remember, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's, let's ask God, too, to show us where we've not imitated his heart, where we haven't especially imitated his heart through adoption. James says, right, in verse, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have it written down here, but in James, uh, it says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, once someone has accepted Christ and as the payment for their sins, they get a new identity. They're, tran- they re- they're given a transformed life that continues to be transformed. Verse 5, right, that, that phrase, adoption as sons, it's important to note here, right, throughout this text, it's saying sons a lot. Uh, but that's, be- that's important because in the context of his day, again, remember the adoption process, it was only for a male heir. It was only that a male would come and become an adopted son. But while the ESV protects that translation for that time and that context, for us, 
for the application, it means for us today that God adopts both sons and daughters, true children of God in Christ. And that means a status change, a new identity. You are no longer slaves, but sons. You get Jesus' life in place of your own. You get freed from the power of sin. Romans uh, 5.10 says, While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more will we be reconciled, shall, shall, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? I, I can't put it any better than Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is what it means to receive the son's payment of adoption, to attain a new status as sons and daughters set free from the power of sin. Again, too, remember that Christians are children of God because they also remember the father's plan for adoption. Now, if this was all God did for his children, that would be really incredible, right? <laughs> but, but, don't miss this. Look at what else God does for his children. God, Christians are children of God because they revel in the Spirit's privileges of adoption. We can enjoy intimacy with God through prayer. This phrase uh, in verse 6, because you are sons, right? He's, he's repeating this. He's reiterating this fact that we don't miss it. Verse 6 is one of the most powerful verses, I think, in the New Testament. And it says, it says don't, don't skip past the fact that you are sons. That is, again, the objective claim that we have as Christians. And now look in verse 6. There's this Trinitarian reference to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here again, we see that sending formula from verse 4, that God sent his Son. Now what God does, he sends his Spirit. He sent the Spirit of his Son, this Holy Spirit, into our hearts so that we cry, Abba, Father. This all happens simultaneously at regeneration, and it's based, again, on the legal work of what Christ has done. And this is what are all of our hearts, all that we are longing for. Remember uh, in Proverbs 3, 5, 6, what does it say? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. All of our hearts are longing, longing for this intimacy, a belonging, a family, approval, praise, blessing, and inheritance. And this is where it's all found. It's all found in what's being described here as prayer. This is the, the additional work of the Spirit sent into our hearts to give us an experience. John Stott puts it this way, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. And this comes through the affectionate, confidential intimacy of our access to God in prayer. Again, sin twists and turns all of our emotions that we should never, we shouldn't never, but we should not always trust in them. However, the text here says that the Spirit was sent in our hearts for an experience, for a feeling, for an experience in prayer with God. The Holy Spirit is uh, the third person of the Trinity, and Ephesians 3 says we were sealed with the, Holy, with the promised Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus promised those who trust in him that he would send the Spirit, he would send a helper. Uh, this is the Christian stamp of approval. This is what says you are mine, you belong here. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised God would give us a helper and give us the words to pray. It's one of the many benefits of adoptions that we can revel in, we can delight in him, and we can talk with him in prayer. 
Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book provides 14 different privileges of adoptions. I won't go, that, I'll go through them all here. Uh, but he notes one of the first and foremost uh, is the greatest privilege of adoption is being able to speak to God and relate to him as a good and loving father. And we see this, right, often in how Jesus taught us to pray and in, in um, our Father, right, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer. And we see the same language in the text here, this crying, Abba, Father. What does this, this phrase crying mean? There's a lot of debate of, over what this phrase means. A lot of people say it's a loud shout. But I think Douglas Moo really hits it, hits the nail on the head here. He says, Paul perhaps uses a word picture to convey the deep and emotional reaction within the believer's heart to the joyful conviction brought about by God's spirit that we are indeed God's sons. Romans 8.15 says it in a different way. He said, Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We, we cry, Abba, Father. By the, the spirit cries that out in us, in prayer. And again, this prayer is, uh, we know that this is in prayer because if you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, verses 34 through 36, Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Yet, uh, remove this cup from me, yet not as what I will, but what you will. This is all about prayer. This phrase, Abba, too, it's, it's Aramaic uh, for father, and it's often referred to as baby talk. John, John Piper uh, reminds us that Jews did not pray like, that, like this. They probably, they'd still don't pray like this. Uh, they may have called him father, they may still call him father, but to call him Abba would be offensive. It would be too familiar. But the important thing for us as Christians is we need both. One writer wrote, we need the admiration of a holy God and the enjoyment of his perfect love, intimacy and reverence, awe and love. If you're in Christ, isn't it, isn't it crazy to think that the God the Father treasures you? Uh, of the seven billion people in the world, of, of all the stars in the sky, that he counts the stars and he calls them all by name, that he knows your name, that he knows you by name, that he chose you, that he loves you because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. Not because of what you can do for him, not because of your performance, because you come to church or read your Bible, but because of who he is, because of what he's done for you, because of Christ. It's because we're in Christ. We have access to him. And, and that's the beautiful thing, too. It's not that he just loves you. We can access him at any time. We can access the Father, the Creator, the God of the universe at any moment in prayer, now and always, continually, anytime, any place, any prayer. David Platt says it this way. He says, it's a great thing to be declared right before God the judge. It's an even greater thing to be loved by God the Father. This is what it truly means to be blessed. Tim Keller uh, shares a really great story that helps, us, helps to illustrate what it really means to be a child of God and how we can relate to him. Uh, he tells a story about Alexander the Great, who had a commander in his army that came to him asking for a very large sum, actually a ridiculous large sum of money to help pay for his daughter's wedding. Uh, if any of you have daughters, you could probably relate maybe to that request. Uh, but, uh, but he comes and he asks him, can you please give me all this money? And, and Alexander the Great thinks about it and he says, yes, please, 
take all that you want. Like, go, my storehouses are over there. Go, grab as much as you want. So the general leaves and the officials that are with Alexander, they come to him and they go, what were you thinking? Why, why did you give him all that ridiculous amount of money? And why were you happy when you gave it to him? And Alexander the Great looks at him and he goes, he has done me a great honor because he has shown that he believes that I am fabulously wealthy and incredibly generous. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you praying like this? Are you living like this? Are you still living like a slave? Or are you living like an adopted son of daughter of an incredibly, fabulously wealthy and incredibly generous father? So intimacy and prayer and access to a good, good father are just a few of the incredible privileges of being adopted by God. Uh, additionally, we can't skip over that adopted children of God are sons, our brothers and sisters. They belong to a family. They're no longer slaves but sons, as verse 7 says here. You know, Michael often says that here, that we are, no, we are not just like a family, but we are a family. And, and hopefully you have felt that. Hopefully you felt welcomed and adopted here as much as we have. Uh, we praise God that you are here. So grateful. Um, and I think for myself that I truly, truly love this. I love you guys, and I'm so grateful to be here with you. Yet, no church is perfect also, right? It's because I'm in it, because you're in it, because we are all in it. And families are challenging and messy. Look at Jesus' life and how his earthly family, uh, like, related to him. They rejected him. And maybe the same might be true in your life since you became a Christian. This may just be another proof that you do belong to the family of God. Jesus did say to his followers that we would have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I think one of the toughest passages, for me at least in Scripture, is is in Luke uh, chapter 14, verse 26. It says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is the God of love, the father to the fatherless. How can you say that we should hate our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters? We have to remember, too, that Jesus often used hyperbole, but that's important for us to remember that what Jesus is saying here is not that we should actually really hate anyone, but that we should love him and prioritize him, prioritize his family above all else. It almost should look like hate because we love him so, so much and love his brothers and his sons and daughters so much. Our ultimate desire and affection should be for him and his family above all else. And as great and difficult as families and relationships can be, though, the greater belonging and family is found in the bride of Christ, in the body and family of God. Remember, it's not a bloodline that connects us. We're not born into God's family um, at, our, at our earthly birth, <laughs> but by the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We share a common and unique adoption story. We are brothers and sisters in Christ wherever we go. We share common threads of repentance, faith, forgiveness, We share a similar past, same present, and same future. It's not a coincidence today that the Nestle family has joined us. Uh, It was uh, about two years ago. I was sitting here, actually, in a different church building, and we were watching a video of the happiest, uh, most joyful couple up on stage as they were in the Philippines about to adopt their first daughter. Uh, It's been such a blessing to see their deep and abiding faith that Nathan, Nate, and Steph have. I'm sorry, in the Lord, and how they have reveled in their adoption by adopting another with such joy and such gladness in their hearts. 
You know, if the, if the Spirit is stirring in you and thinking about adoption in a different way, I just encourage you, please go talk to them. They would love to talk to you. And regardless, you, you just go talk to them. They're such great uh, <laughs> brothers and sisters in Christ. It is such a blessing to be a family together in Christ with them. Um, so yes, again, this is one of the, the great privileges we have as being adopted into God's family, that we have brothers and sisters. We have a belonging in God's family here locally, but all across the world. And Christians can revel in the Spirit's privileges. And lastly, they can revel in the Spirit's privileges as they wait for a future inheritance. Verse 7 says that, uh, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This, this, this future inheritance is what's awaiting every believer, every Christian. Just like earlier we spoke of waiting for others to be adopted, so do we too have been adopted or waiting for our final adoption. Paul writes in Romans 8.23, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our, our bodies. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. There is coming a day, there's coming a day when all sin, all separation, all death, all disease, all decay will be done away with and all his heirs will inherit all that God has. God is the owner of everything. What, what a day that will be. What a day that will be. Again, these are just a few of the many benefits and privileges we have of being adopted by God. Intimacy with a loving father, prayer through the Holy Spirit, a diverse family of brothers and sisters and a future inheritance waiting for us. So how do we relate this adoption in Christ to others? How do we, when we tell them the gospel, when we share the gospel with others? Ephesians 5.1 says that we are to imitate God as beloved children. We're to live holy and blameless lives. When we mess up, we apologize. We take the blame. It's okay because we know we have a forgiving and loving father, right? We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. We can acknowledge our mistakes. And there are so many ways to reflect who God is to others, to be a father to the fatherless. Uh, just three that really stick out, just, just like the three points from today's sermon. Plan to tell people of your adoption. Who is looking for approval around you? Who, who do you know who's afraid of others' disapproval? Who's on the outside maybe and looking to be brought in? Who, who might be a foreigner? You know, we live in Ann Arbor where there's all the nations are coming to us. They're coming here. How, how can we be fathers to the fathers? How can we plan to reach them and share the gospel with them? And when you do share the gospel, think, think how we went through the bridge diagram. What do you start with? Try starting with God the Father. Start with who he is, his nature, his characteristics, his attributes. Um, use the bridge diagram, or maybe you have another favorite tool. Use that. Use some handouts. If you need some, I've got some for you. Just use a gospel track. It's really helpful. Um, but again, try memorizing and storing scripture in your heart too. Just use those verses that God has really used in your life to draw you and, and adopt you. And then secondly, pay the temporary cost of adoption. Give, give gifts. What, what ways can we be showing adopting love to others? We can give our, our time. We can give up our time. We can give up our talents, our treasures. We can adopt. We could foster. We could, I don't know if anyone's heard of Compassion International. It's a way to come alongside, right? Be a pen pal to kids all across the world as they grow up hearing the gospel. Um, we can also make meals for neighbors, and we can get to know their names. We're doing a series right now at work just talking about how simple and how important it is just to know someone's name, just to say, hey, John, not, hey, dude, that lives over there, you know, like, hey, I know you. I've been praying for you. I've been thinking about you. Get to know what, what, 
What moves them? What motivates them? Are they motivated by approval? Is this gospel thread of adoption something you could share with them that you've been adopted, that you've been rescued from slavery to sin? And then lastly, too, uh, uh, pleasure in the relationship of adoption. How, How big are our prayers? How big are our requests to the Father? Let's ask him to stir our hearts to see adoption as a plan A, not a plan B. And let's delight in spending time with him in prayer. What a, what a privilege it is to pray with our Father, to be with him. And let's ask him, too, how he wants to use us in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, uh, to tell others the gospel and how you've been adopted. Don't, don't also be afraid to adopt, or to, sorry, to invite people to church. All right, let's be invitational. Let's go forth and share this good news with others um, and invite them to come follow Jesus with us. So to close, uh, James Whitmill Early provides this great bedtime blessing for children. Uh, It goes something like this. He asks his children, do you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? The child's supposed to respond, yes. And then he asks, do you know that I love you no matter what good things you do? And the child's supposed to respond, yes. Who loves you like that? God does. Do you know that he loves you way more than I do? Yes then rest in that love. Brothers and sisters, this is the beauty and the grace of the gospel. May we rest in knowing that we are children of God, not because of what we do, but because we remember the Father's plan of adoption, we receive the Son's payment of adoption, and we revel in the Spirit's privileges of adoption. Let's pray.